Hello, and welcome to the Inside Writing Podcast. I am your host, Josh Sippy. As a reminder, all of these episodes are recorded live, Wednesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can sign up on the Gotham Writers website for free. Now then, on to the show. Today, we're talking with S.B. Divya. Divya is a Nebula-nominated author of speculative fiction, novellas, and novels, with work appearing in Lightspeed, Analog, and more. Her novella, Machinehood, earned a Publishers Weekly starred review. She is also the co-editor of the Hugo-nominated literary magazine and podcast, Escape Pod. Divya, welcome to the show. Hi, Josh. Thanks so much for having me here. Of course. Thank you for being here. So, Divya, you've got quite the creative portfolio, both as a writer and as an editor. But I want to start at the beginning uh, and ask you, what was that creative spark that sort of kicked off this creative path for you? The, the earliest creative spark was way back in eighth grade English class when we had a writing assignment um, to write a short story. And I was already deep into science fiction as a just as a reader and a fan at that point. And so naturally, I, I wrote a, a little bit of science fiction. And at the end of the exercise, we traded um, with a partner at our table and read and critiqued each other's work. And happened to be a friend of mine and she she read my story, which definitely ended with one of those Lady and the Tiger type of cliffhangers and told me that I had not finished the story and she insisted that I should keep writing it. And so, um, and so I did, um, I never finished writing it, but I wrote, you know, many chapters just kind of rambling through and, and I loved it. Um, but then, Writing at that age in my teenage years never struck me as a viable career. I'm pretty sure my parents would not have approved. They they thought my writing was great, but they were like, "You got to do something that makes you know real money." And and so I uh, I discovered a passion for science as well. And so for for many years I pursued science and then engineering before cycling back to writing much later in my life. And the, the inspiration for the second time around was, um, was a couple of things. I had always wanted to go back and, and resume writing science fiction. I just figured I'd do it as a retirement hobby and not as a profession. But, uh, you know, in my 30s, I had a kid. I lost a couple of friends to cancer. And I realized that, you know, life doesn't always go the way you think it's going to go. And that... Um, writing was something I still really loved and that kind of re-energized me and gave me space to be myself apart from being an engineer and a wife and a mother. And so I decided to start writing again and actually try to get published. And um, it's been a pretty wild ride these last eight years <laughs> since, since that happened. So, so between that eighth grade assignment and when you picked up writing again, were you still engaged in your creativity at all? Or is it kind of just like, a, I'll get to this later? The last piece of fiction I completed was uh, sophomore year of college for a creative writing class I took, which was a short story. And then after that, you know, I was just up to my eyeballs in quantum mechanics and neuroscience and just trying to keep my grades up. And once I started working I dabbled here and there, but I never really put the time in to finish anything. Um, the writing I did was on LiveJournal. And so I kept up uh, semi-public, just, you know, friends locked 
journal entries about the goings on and the happenings in my life. And that was my outlet. Uh, it wasn't what I would call creative most of the time, but, um, but it kind of scratched that itch. And I think it kept up my writing skills in terms of exposition, at least. But no, I, I took uh, basically a 15 year hiatus between that creative writing class in sophomore year. And, uh, and actually the first Gotham class I took is what spurred me to finish another short story for the, for the first time in my life after that many, that many years. Yeah. So I want to, I want to get back to that in a bit, but I want to talk about, because you spent, like you said, I think it was 20 years being a, an engineer. I mean, you write science fiction. Do you feel like your years as an engineer, has that influenced your writing at all? For sure. I draw on my background, especially because it was a fairly broad education. I went to Caltech and I started as a physics major, much like half the incoming class. I instead intended to go into astrophysics. And then I ended up diverting halfway through my undergraduate to do computational neuroscience. So I have biology, electrical engineering, and physics and astronomy, all of which are, you know, fantastic foundations for writing um, the harder type of science fiction, right? Where you're really kind of trying to make it realistic or plausible or pull on, you know, current cutting edge sort of questions that are looming in science to come up with creative answers to. And so one of the best things about writing science fiction for me has been that I now have an excuse to make time to go and read research papers, um, which as an engineer for a long time, I was, I was really away from research. I was doing, you know, much more just coding and development, chip development, that kind of thing. And now, uh, because I write science fiction, it's like, ooh, you know, I get to dig into um, some obscure part of astronomy or dark matter or quantum tunneling effects or all kinds of biotech engineering. So really whatever uh, interests me, I can, I can spend time reading about it and I get to call it work and I love it. Right. I'm, I'm always so curious with writers who have had a career and then go into full-time writing, like what the, what the transition was like, because you've clearly always had this creative impulse. You got it very, very young. At what point in your career as an engineer were you like, you know what, it's time to actually make that switch and become a full-time writer? I have kind of been flip-flopping, honestly. Um, back in 2016, when I had sold my novella, Runtime, I decided um, to quit full-time work and just be a consultant. So I was coming in one day a week at my previous job just to kind of help them transition and train up new people. And I did that for about a year. And the, the following year, while I was technically consulting for them, they didn't really have anything for me. So I was basically full-time writing in 2017. That's when I draft, drafted Machinehood, which was my first full-length novel. And then actually in 2018, I went back to work part-time in engineering and quit at the beginning of this year so that I could focus on uh, the release of Machinehood because it was my debut novel. It was out you know, in hardcover. It had a much uh, broader release and more publicity than Runtime did. And so I really wanted to make sure I had the bandwidth to do that. And uh, for, ver for a variety of reasons, I just I haven't gone back to any engineering work. I haven't totally closed the door on it. Um, 
But by the same token, writing is going well enough at this point that I am not in any urgent need of going back to work. And luckily, you know, financially we're stable. My spouse still works. So we have health benefits. All the essential stuff is covered. And so I'm, I, I'm calling myself, you know, partly a consultant and partly a semi-retired engineer <laughs> at this point. Um, but you never know. And, and honestly, the, the transition happened slowly. So it kind of overlapped. When I first started writing in 2013, I was doing it um, just like an hour a day, uh, usually after putting my, my toddler to bed and then spent a little time with my husband. And after he went to bed, I would sit and write for an hour or so at night. And, uh, and it kind of gradually built up as I had successes. Like, you know, once I sold the novella, I cut back my hours and then I, you know, I did that transition to consulting. When I went back to work in 2018, I was very upfront with um, the people who were hiring me. It was a small startup. So I told them, look, I have this writing career going. It is definitely a priority when it comes to, you know, deadlines. I will try to juggle both, but I'm not going to give up on that. And therefore, I'd like to come in part time and very, very lucky to get a part time engineering job. Those are those are kind of like unicorns. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's been a process, I think. And uh, I know a lot of other writers who have kept their day job, so to speak, just because, especially if you start writing, you know, much earlier in your life, you kind of, you know, it's good to have that paycheck. Um, while full-time writing sounds wonderful and very romantic at the end of the day, it's like, you got to pay your rent, you got to buy food and, being stressed out about writing income, which is very, very unpredictable, can often be a creative block. That's actually one of the reasons I went back to work in 2018 was that um, my spouse had also left his staple job to, to join a startup. And I didn't feel like we had enough financial security at that point. So I wanted to go back. And I literally for, for a couple months just couldn't work on my novel. I couldn't write because I was too stressed out about reality. And once I had that part-time steady income, I was able to focus again. Now, I want to get back to that in a second, but I wanted to also rewind because you'd said when you sold your first novella, that's when you decided to scale back your hours. You make that sound like, like it's such an easy thing. Like in your brain, were you thinking like, well, now that I've seen that I can sell my work, I know that this will come more frequently, or I'm sure there was still a risk involved whenever you made that decision. There definitely was. And that's why I kind of kept one foot in technology, um, you know, by continuing to consult for my prior company, I didn't have any gaps in my resume so that if I did want to go back and get another job, I could say, look, I've been doing, you know, I have still been doing technical work. I still know how to do it. Um, it still feels like a risk sometimes. Um, you know, there's, there's no guarantees. I had my debut novel come out in March of this year and a month later, my editor turned down my next book. And so it went on submission again and um, it's been months and uh, has only recently resolved itself in a way that I can't talk about publicly yet, but, um, but I have, you know, I have finally sold it, but 
you just you can't predict, you know, with writing unless you have a multi-book deal, and and even then, you know, the the income again is is uneven, and there's no guarantees that your publisher is going to pick up the next project that you've written. So unless you're like an absolute bestseller, um, it's always a risk, I think, walking away from that paycheck. And so having this sort of hedge, I guess, in my life of being able to do some sort of part-time work or some sort of contract work has helped with that, uh, with the fear of making the transition. The harder thing for me, I think, has been just internalizing the identity uh, because I spent so much of my life being an engineer, being in science, and, you know, that's who I was, uh, doubly so as, you know, a woman and a woman of color in a field which is male-dominated. Uh, it had really become a core part of my identity. And now when somebody asks me what I do, um, I still say, you know, well, I've been an engineer up until January because <laughs> I, I can't quite completely let that go. And then I say, but I'm also a writer and everybody's always more excited about the book writing part, like inevitably, you know, whether it's my former coworkers, whether it's alumni from Caltech or whether it's just, you know, a random person I've just met. Uh, people are much more excited to meet someone who's the author of a book than someone who's an engineer. But it's still kind of, I guess, important to me to kind of hold on to that part of my life. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're you're a self-professed lover of science and math. So I'm, I'm curious how, why did writing, I don't want to say win out because you still do hold on to that part, but why did writing take so much more priority in your life than, than the science and, and math part of it? At this point, it's just because it's sort of, act two of my life. I see it as my second career. So I feel like I had a fulfilling um, career in technology. I, you know, I got to the level of a senior engineer. There wasn't much further for me to advance on that career track unless I went into management. So I kind of capped out. And that was one of the other reasons I started writing again, because I felt like I wasn't having that sense of learning and discovery with my, with my work, with my technical work. And so I was looking for it elsewhere. And writing has just, um, you know, it's a dream, right? Uh, at least for me, it was always a dream. And so being able to say I'm living that dream is, is pretty awesome. And frankly, I am enough of an introvert that sitting around at home with my cat on my couch and some music and my laptop and just disappearing into a story for four or five hours a day is absolutely divine. Like I don't, I, I, I have a kid who gets me out of the house. So I do interact with other human beings periodically, but otherwise it's like, yeah, I don't miss, you know, driving to an office. We've seen that I think with the pandemic too, right? A lot of people don't miss driving to the office every day. Um, it's good to interact with other human beings, but writing uh, is, has just been a really fulfilling way to um, pass my midlife and will hopefully take me kind of into my sunset years. So I want to rewind a little bit because you mentioned taking a Gotham class, which I'd be remiss if I didn't go back and visit that. So where were you as a writer when that point came that you were like, I need something more. I need this next step to get me to where I want to get to. I was just beginning. Um, I took this lovely class called Mondo Biondo Dream Big at the recommendation of a friend. 
at the in the early part of 2013 and that kind of rekindled my you know my dream of writing science fiction that i had shelved for so long right it was it was very dusty and forgotten for a long time and uh, i decided that i needed some assistance you know i hadn't taken an english class in forever and because i had a three-year-old and a full-time job i couldn't you know run off to the local university or wherever and start taking classes i just didn't have that kind of time in my day so i looked for something online and that's how i came across gotham which was not just an online course it was completely asynchronous so there was no live teaching element whatsoever and i was like that's perfect that is exactly what i need so that i can do the assignments you know on my own time wherever i can fit it in and i signed up for it and you know as science fiction and fantasy level one and the first thing you have to do is turn in a short story to be critiqued. So literally for the first time since sophomore year of college, I sat down and finished a short story. Like I had this graveyard of short stories I'd kind of begun and abandoned along the way, like just two or three of them here and there. And this time I was like, no, I actually have to get to the end. Like I have to complete this and it has to be a real ending. It can't be some eighth grade cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, that, that was the first piece of fiction I had completed in 15 years at that point. And that really kind of kickstarted this whole journey because I didn't want to just dabble, mm -hmm. you know, as I had been through my teens, um, you know, occasionally in my 20s and 30s, I said, no, this time I really want to see if I can get published and become a professional author. And so I, I finished that first class. And then I started doing a little bit more on my own. I wrote some flash fiction pieces and I submitted them to magazines towards the end of 2013. I started collecting my first, you know, first rejections are, are the worst because you have no calluses, you have no scars, you have no experience and they hit you super hard, or at least they hit me super hard. But I persevered. Um, and in February of 2014, I sold, my, I sold my first flash fiction piece to Daily Science Fiction, mm -hmm. which got me into an online uh, speculative fiction writers group, which was fantastic because it was for up and coming writers. And so I learned so much from that cohort. They had lots of contests just for fun and motivation. And that's how I ended up writing my novella that November of 2014 and a few months later discovered there were open submissions at tour.com and said sure at that point i think i had two flash fiction pieces to my name i was like they're not gonna buy my novella but i don't have anything else to do with it so i'll i'll throw it in their submissions box and forget about it which is exactly what happened i sold nothing else that entire year i actually made a bet with someone at uh the World Science Fiction Convention in August that I wasn't going to sell another story for the rest of the year. And two weeks later, I received an offer from them to buy the novella. And yeah, that kind of, you know, that really started a change in my life. That at actually at that same time in 2015, I was taking science fiction and fancy level two because I hadn't sold anything for a while. I was like, oh, maybe I need to level up, you know, my skills. I'm missing something. 
And so I was taking, I was actually in the middle of that class when I received the contract. So that was super fun. Great. So, you know, I feel like there's always, I mean, as writers, we always struggle with, with self-doubt, but was there a moment in there where you were like, you know what, I can actually do this. This is something I can do. Every time I sell something, I feel that. And every time I go through a dry spell, which inevitably happens, I feel the opposite. It's like, oh my gosh, have I peaked? Is it over? You know, am I ever going to sell anything again? And it's just, I think it's just this process we go through, right? Like you're, you're riding the high of a sale or a release or an award nomination. And then you're in the depths of despair because nobody wants to buy anything you've written and, and where will you go from here? And it's just, I tell people that writing is as a career is like a roller coaster. There's just these massive ups and downs and you're constantly writing them versus having, you know, a steady paycheck <laughs> with a reasonably well-defined path of advancement. You do your job, you do it well, especially with engineering. It's like, it's code, it's a device. It either works and meets its functional specifications or it doesn't. There's not a lot of subjectivity. Writing is the exact opposite. You know, somebody has to, some editor somewhere has to love your story in order to want to buy it. And that's really up to them. And there's, you know, no amount of, well, there's a certain amount of baseline skill you need, but beyond that, there's nothing you can do that's going to guarantee a sale of anything that you write. And that's, that can be really hard to contend with, at least for someone of my personality type and, you know, coming from that particular place of engineering that career that I've been in for so long. That it was, it's weird. It's still weird sometimes to sit here and be like, I could just go back and start earning this much money every year. <laughs> Like, why am I putting myself through this? But, you know, I, I love the feeling of having people read my work. Like, mm-hmm. that's ultimately what it's about, you know, um, changing their lives. I get emails from people about certain stories I've written that they really related to it, that they loved seeing someone like them uh, in fiction. They never expected that. You know, these are the these are the things that keep me going. And, and, you know, we all, as writers, like you said, we all go through those dips. What do you do when you're in those dips to keep going? I mean, everybody handles it differently. They all have their own ways of adapting. But what what do you do to, to keep yourself inspired? And you kind of already mentioned how it's just, it's something you love. So you're going to keep doing it. But are there any things that you, any, anything that you do when you're in those ruts that sort of helps get you out of it? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, and I have learned some of this from talking to other writers and you know, taking their wisdom. Sometimes you just need a break. Uh, It's easy when you're your own boss and for something like writing to kind of keep cracking the whip, like, no, I must be productive. I must always be writing, you know, write every day, blah, blah, blah. That's not always true. Uh, Writers can also burn out. And sometimes you just need to walk away and find the things that made you love stories in the first place, whether it's movies or binge watching Netflix for a couple weeks or just, you know, reading novels outside of what you already write, you know, it's not or reading, you know, reading outside of research or comps, right, like finding things that you're just doing for pleasure. Um, that's, that's something that's definitely helped me when I'm really in the depths of, of depression. 
the other thing is to let go of any idea of what you should write and write something for fun. I know a lot of writers who do fan fiction on the side and that helps them recharge when they are struggling with, you know, their professional work. And I, this summer when I was um, grinding my teeth and crying my tears over nobody buying my new novel, I started writing a fantasy retelling of Rumpelstiltskin, which, you know, it's completely away from the sort of near future or even far future science fiction that I do. It is an idea that had been percolating for, for a few years. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to write this. I'm writing it for myself. You know, it's not for any anthology call. It's not, I don't care if it never sells. I just want to write something fun and different just to, just to recharge, just for me. And so, yeah, so these are kind of the, the different ways I, I guess you keep that creative spark going. And sometimes, you know, just take a vacation. It's just like any other job and get away from it all to whatever helps recharge your soul, whether it's lying on a beach or going on a cruise, not always easy in the middle of a pandemic. But <laughs> uh, for me, I love being out in nature and just getting out, you know, into the woods and tromping around and, you know, do do the things that make you happy. And then eventually the creativity will find its way back. And, and you know, you, we we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to revisit it. Where you mentioned the the change whenever you became a full time writer, I'm curious how your process as a writer changed. And did it become easier to write? I know for some writers, like when they transition into having more time, it's almost like they have too much time and they don't know what to do with it. Did you have any of that whenever you first transitioned into having more time to write? Not really, because. I think because the transition happened slowly and, you know, the way I started writing, it was already so structured with my time and very, very intentional. I was not a weekend warrior. I didn't sit down and just binge write for six hours on a Saturday. I couldn't do that because I had a four-year-old or a five-year-old, you know, it's like I had other demands on my time during the day. So I always just kind of grabbed whatever pieces of time I could. Sometimes it was lunch break or like while, while my kid was in ballet class, you know, sit there 15, 20 minutes and just write. When everything, when everything kind of opened up in 2016, um, at the beginning we were actually in the middle of a major home remodel. So I still wasn't completely free, though I did have all day. I, I made a, an accountability group because me and two other writers who had also gone full-time at the same time. And so we had weekly check-ins with each other and we committed to what we were going to work on the following week. And then when we checked in, did we actually accomplish what we said? And so that kept me a little bit more motivated and accountable to actually get the writing done. Um, peer pressure it's a great tool, <laughs> as long as they're supportive and not mean about it. Um, so that that kind of got me in that habit. And then I also had structure because I had a school-aged kid, right? So there was not as much time as you might think between, you know, the hours of 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. when she was in class. So I, I knew that, you know, once I picked her up, that's it. My day was over. And so that, I think, also kind of helped me. And that continues to this day, helps me kind of compress and be very intentional about my writing time. And finally, 
I use uh, a tool called Freedom to block my distractions and it's pre-scheduled for my my core hours from 10 to 2. Um, you know, no, no social media, no YouTube, no Netflix, like everything's blocked off. For a while I was even blocking off email, anything that might distract me and, you know, help me stay focused on the writing. One thing I always love to ask science fiction writers, because you, you do, you write into the future and especially with near future, I'm always curious how you handle, you know, like in a sense, you're predicting the future. Now, maybe you don't see it that way, but do you, do you ever feel pressure to like build a future that looks like so many futures are very bleak. They're always like, sometimes they're not like, I know with machine hood, you know, it's set in 2095, humanity is dependent on various pills for an optimal life. How much of that was you sort of just building a good story and how much of it was you seeing where humanity could go or do you, does that factor into it at all? It was a bit of both. I spent some time up front trying to decide where I think humanity is going to go in the next 75 years. And I did some research. I actually did a little outline of each decade in terms of, you know, the technology, the geopolitics, the, the social upheavals. Um, I, I knew up front that this was going to be a book about uh, AI and labor conflicts that we're already seeing today and sort of the social upheaval that's going to come through these transitions. So I had, you know, I had some target targeted ideas for where my world building needed to go. But, um, but I started with this book, at least I mostly started up front with that world building and a very loose plot. And I spent a lot of time revising that plot to kind of work together. But I made sure uh, I'm pretty sensitive to dystopias and I'm not a huge fan of them, honestly. Um, people have still called my near futures dystopic <laughs> just because I think bad things are in there. Um, but with like with machinehood, you know, I tried to present some things that were positive, you know, ways in which people had, um, be, you know, come up with more sustainable forms of energy, come up with uh, eco-friendly buildings, you know, other types of philosophies of living. There's this outside in lifestyle where people don't have doors or windows. They just let kind of nature creep into their houses. So I, I did my best, you know, and like even daily conveniences, right? Um, the, the primary point of view in the novel is a special forces action hero type of character, but the secondary point of view is very domestic, is a, a mother. Um, and from her chapters, you really get to see, you know, what some of those daily conveniences are, kitchens that cook for you, furniture that can rearrange itself. Um, stuff like that. So I, I definitely wanted to kind of uh, present a balanced depiction of 2095. Yes, there's plenty of bad stuff. But, you know, we're living through plenty of bad stuff. We, we always are, right? In any given decade, there are crises, there are challenges. And so for me, a dystopia is really, you know, taking that to the extreme where there is nothing good. And honestly, to be truly dystopic, it's, it should be implausible, right? Um, so it's funny to me that a lot of people consider near future science fiction stories to be dystopic because I think they're just realistic and the audience just doesn't want to, <laughs> doesn't want to recognize the bad stuff that, you know, that we all have. 
So I, I'm sure we'll get back to your writing, but I want to talk about Escape Pod now, which is you're you're the co-editor of Escape Pod. Um, I'm curious where you were in your creative life when Escape Pod was came to you. When when did this opportunity come to you? I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to have you repeat that. I think my earbuds died. Yeah, no problem. I, I was switch audio. It's all good. I was just talking about Escape Pod uh, and when this came to you, where you were as a creative, whenever the opportunity to to co-edit Escape Pod came to you and, and sort of what the decision-making process was for you to take that on. I actually started as a, what's known as a slush reader for Escape Pod in um, March of 2015, kind of uh, as I was entering that first dry spell of no sales. And I was invited to uh, come and read submissions for them by someone in that online writers group I was in. And I decided I could fit it in. And the reason I wanted to fit it in was I had heard that reading submissions, if you're a short story writer, could help you improve your own craft. And so I figured it was worth my time to do that. And about a year later, I became the assistant editor, which meant uh, taking the stuff that the slush readers had read and deciding what got passed on to the editor in chief and what got rejected. So that was an interesting, you know, next step right towards um, that gatekeeping process of deciding, you know, what gets published and what doesn't. And then about a year after that, I became editor and uh, I really wanted a co-editor at that point, even though I, that was 2017 and I didn't have any other work other than my novel, but, um, but I still had the kid and everything else. And I just, I wanted backup. So I decided, uh, so I asked Mar Lafferty who had previously edited Escape Pod, if she would be willing to come back and co-edit with me. And thankfully she said yes, cause she's awesome. She has a lot of experience and insight that really helped me. And so for the past four and a half years now, I've been um, co-editor. And I think the, the biggest thing I've taken away from this experience has been just what a privilege it is to sit in an editor's chair and get to make these decisions on what gets published and what doesn't. Um, and it, I think it's also a responsibility especially right now with, you know, so many things in flux these past five to 10 years in terms of the conversations that are happening about gatekeeping, you know, for various marginalized and underrepresented populations to really be cognizant of that and to try to improve the diversity of what, um, what gets out to our audience. And then the other half is just from a personal standpoint to recognize how truly subjective the editorial experience is and therefore when my stuff does get rejected to not take it so personally <laughs> um i mean i i still obviously get uh get frustrated and get those occasional bouts of despair at my own writing but i also recognize you know intellectually that editors turn down stories for such just a multitude of reasons right and so it has it, it doesn't actually reflect on the quality of my writing at this stage and so um yeah i love it i i i've kind of grown into that role and i've, I've really appreciated um 
the opportunities it's given me in terms of being able to find new authors um, to start people's careers to watch them you know take off whether it's people we've published but also people on staff who come in as submissions readers have been gone on to excellent careers so it's it's very gratifying and you you brought this up a little bit i'm curious though because i I always like to hear about the 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 creative balance between being a writer and editor at the same time because they're both such sort of free form positions where you know you 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 can devote your entire time to one or the other and you have to balance both of them do that does your work as an editor does it fit well with your work as a writer i mean i assume it does because you've been doing it for so long you're still enjoying it like do you do they benefit? Do they like help each other? Yeah, I think so. Um, especially initially at this point, I don't know that there's a lot of direct benefit on like the craft of my writing. I think that was really the first couple of years where I saw, you know, a lot of direct impact on understanding what works and doesn't work in short stories, but also what's going to make it what's likely to take a story past the slush pile you know how critical it is to have that hook in the beginning to have a very clean first few pages to establish the conflict up front and also uh equally on the other end how critical it is to stick that landing um at the end and those kinds of, you know, those kinds of like small, like craft related skill sets, I think I got out of the editorial process pretty early on. Now it's more, I think it's more the other way. It's what I can bring to the world of science fiction as an editor. And I love doing it. And it's, I think because it's a short story and a podcast magazine, um, it's work, but I can generally silo that work uh, at the right places in my week. So I have dedicated time still for my own writing. And and my own writing, you know, always comes first in my mind, though Escape Pod definitely brings a, a chunk of responsibilities and a different kind of stress occasionally. You know, someone didn't get paid or someone's byline was accidentally wrong. Stuff happens. Fires have to be put out. Um, you know, a narrator gets sick and can't complete their, their reading, just got to scramble to find someone that, that kind of like management, I guess. Um, that's also been interesting because as an engineer, I, I never was a manager. And so I've really had to learn, you know, how to manage a team, how to basically manage a, a business, even though we don't run for profit. Um, but effectively we are a professional operation. And so that, that comes with certain demands and standards. And it's, it's, it's been interesting to kind of take that journey in my writing half. And then of course there's the uh, Escape Pod got its first Hugo nomination a year after um, Mara and I became co-editors. And that's been fantastic because now I get to put Hugo nominated on my books. <laughs> which is always fun. Um, You know, Runtime got the Nebula nomination, which was awesome. But having having both now getting to, you know, go to a Hugo Award ceremony and after party as a nominee was uh, was really special. So that's that's been uh, another nice thing to come out of it and very, very unexpected. I'm pretty sure uh, Mara and I were literally screaming at each other on the phone (laughs) the first time we got the notice. 
And, and I realized I glanced over this and came up in the Q&A, but if you don't mind, what is Escape Pod? Oh, Escape Pod is a weekly science fiction podcast. It is the original science fiction podcast. It started in 2005, was founded by Sarah Ely. Um, I joined 10 years into it. We are now up to episode 800 something, and we publish a short story typically a short story every week, though the last couple of years we've been doing some multi-part longer pieces. And we operate like a magazine. So we have uh, general open submissions for science fiction short stories between 1,500, 6,000 words. We pay SFWA professional rates. And if we decide, you know, you go through the submissions process like you would with any short story magazine. And if we decide to buy your short story, we contract with you, you get paid, then we find, and then so that the additional step we take, unlike a traditional literary magazine is we have the podcast side. So we take your story, we find a narrator who we think is the perfect um, match for your main character's point of view. Sometimes we even have uh, multiple narrators if there are multiple POVs in a story and they read it sort of audiobook style and then it goes out to 50 to 75,000 people who uh, download it and listen to it on their podcatchers and it's totally free to listen to we we take donations from our listeners to support all the business operations and um, we now have a whole family of podcasts under an umbrella called escape artists that uh have a science fiction arm which is escape pod but also podcastle for fantasy pseudopod for horror and cast of wonders for young adults so definitely go check it out you if you go to escapepod.org you find links to all the other podcasts as well and you can see what sort of stories uh, more and i like to publish and then since we uh since we started Q&A, we might as well keep going because there's a few questions building up here. So first question, do you find it challenging to turn complex scientific concepts into understandable prose for all readers? Or perhaps it's one of the best parts of writing? It is one of the best parts of writing science fiction for me is trying to balance that need to deliver information without being stodgy or obviously info dumpy about it. But also, um, it can be tricky. and it's you're never going to make everybody happy with whatever it is that you're writing and so you know some science fiction writers get deeply deeply technical and they have you know they find their fans who love that uh some writers are they basically gloss over it all right like it's the star wars kind of approach to science fiction where we don't talk about how any of it works it just works and you're in it for the ride and for the fun i try to kind of take a middle path just because, um, especially if I'm writing something that's more hard science fiction, I've done the research and in my head, I kind of know how it works. And so I wanna give readers a little bit of a hint of that just because many of them do find it interesting, but it can also be dangerous to get too deep into it because at the end of the day, you're making something up and you're probably gonna get something wrong. So uh, one of my pieces of advice to people who who always ask about, you know, how do they balance it? I'm like, give a little, just enough to make it believable, but not so much that the expert who's reading your story is going to start calling you out on every mistake you made and how this will never, ever happen. Because 
<laughs> that's what pulls people out of the story. And so it's far better to keep them, you know, locked into the plot and the characters suffering um, and to keep them engaged in reading than to have them be like, what? Like, you can't build a device that's going to do that, you know? So not that way, at least, right? So, yeah, so it, it's definitely a, a tricky balancing act. And sometimes it also just depends on the project. Like right now I'm working on a short story for a futurist project for the government and they want details, like actual like stuff that I was like, yeah, I don't need to put the exact numbers in. And the editors came back and said, no, we want the actual numbers, you know, for these different things. Like how many people are going to die? How much is it going to cost? I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> like I have those numbers. I just, you know, again, didn't want to put too much dry fact into the story. So it's it's very variable depending on the audience too. Next question. I'm less than one year from retiring from tech to move full-time into writing. So this is great stuff. What mental challenges, esteem, confidence, et cetera, have you experienced making the transition, assuming money and healthcare are not stressors? The hardest thing coming from tech, I think, is not having that obvious feedback of what works and what doesn't. That subjectivity I was talking about earlier, um, you know, whether you're in code or mechanical engineering or electrical engineering, uh, you build the thing and either it works or it doesn't. And that makes it a lot easier to know, you know, whether you're on the right path. With writing, um, you're not gonna know. And, you know, however far, at least uh, for the eight years that I've been doing this, uh, however far I've gotten, there's always still more to learn and things to improve on. And so I'm never 100% confident, like, yes, I got it, this is done, it's clean, I understand writing, I'm good to go. <laughs> um, and so I think, I, I, putting aside your ego and just kind of um, learning to go with the flow with writing uh, is probably the hardest part and really internalizing that it is a subjective process and that yes, you should continue to improve your craft, you should hone your skills, but you should also not beat yourself up over every rejection. It doesn't mean that you failed. Next question. This is two similar questions. Someone wrote them both in here. Do you, uh, do you find you develop the plot first or do you think of the character initially and let the plot develop or both? I, um, I have come up with what I call the triangle method of developing stories. I, I have three things, especially because it's science fiction. I have an idea for the world. I have character and then I have plot. And I feel like they are three anchor points. I'm like, hey, there's a triangle, there's your visual. Um, and anytime you tweak one, it's gonna pull on the others. So, um, so I tend to be somewhat iterative in my development. I often, I would say, actually come up with the idea first. So um, for Machine Hood, the idea was, okay, this is gonna be a book about AI and labor rights then characters, okay, who are the characters that are going to be affected by AI and labor rights and whose stories do I want to tell? And then plot, um, you know, from those characters and that stories, what is the plot that's going to allow me to tell the stories and to illustrate the idea? And then inevitably, you know, 
I go, so then it goes back to, okay, so now I have these characters and plots, like what other ideas do I need to develop to support them? And then again, going back to revisiting the characters, like, okay, what is the backstory for these characters in order to support this plot and these ideas? And so I tend to be somewhat iterative in, in going around those three things until I'm kind of happy with the balance of all three. And then a similar question here, uh, someone's asking, how do you develop your characters? Do you find it to be more challenging? No, I tend to, when I was writing short stories in the beginning, I tended to be very character centric. I think I still do. Um, character arc matters more to me than plot for a short story. And so I don't, I definitely don't find it more challenging to develop characters. Um, the way I do it is I tend to draw from people in real life, whether it's people I know personally or, you know, stories I've read, news features, that kind of thing. Um, I'm always kind of collecting people's stories in my head. And then I think my characters end up being a little bit of a pastiche of, you know, various different aspects um, of those people that I know. So even when for example, with Machine Hood, the main character, Walga Ramirez, is this like ex-Special Forces badass, which I'm completely not. And I know a couple of Marines, but um, the only Special Forces person I know is like my mom's cousin, who's kind of an like, uncle of mine in India. And I've never really sat down and talked with him a ton. But, um you know i did my research i did my reading i talked i interviewed people whatever to develop that aspect of the character but i was able to throw in other fun stuff like her love for cooking which is something um you know that i'm i'm married to a gourmand and i know several other people who that's what they do to relax right um or uh artwork you know that this is a character who loves to draw which is a thing um, my daughter likes to do so I kind of pull in these little pieces um, to give that extra dimensionality and authenticity to the characters. Mm -hmm. Next question. Uh, how many listeners did you say that Escape Pod has? Oh, so I think our latest numbers is uh, in terms of weekly downloads, we have something like 50 to 75,000. How many of them actually listen and when they listen? It's a little harder to know, but that many people are at least subscribed and engaged. Mm -hmm. Next question. Do you have a favorite author or any favorite authors? Who do you like to read? Um, yes. Uh, lately, like newer favorite authors are Yoon Ha Lee, uh, Sarah Pinsker, Annalie Newitz, and Cameron Hurley. I also love uh, Ken Liu's stuff and Ted Chang's stuff. Uh, in my formative teenage years of reading science fiction, I was a gigantic Frank Herbert nerd. So, you know, obviously with the new Dune movie, we're, we're getting a whole new generation of fans there. But like I read all his books and um, CJ Cherry. I loved her prose, read all her books. One of the best moments of my life uh, since becoming a writer was I was at the Nebula conference when CJ Cherry was given her Grandmaster Award by the SFWA. And I actually got to sit and talk with her and take a picture with her and hand her my novella, which was super cool. Um, and then uh, some other authors that I've loved, uh, you know, older authors are um, 
Joan D. Vinge. I really liked her stuff growing up. Uh, and of course, there's the ABC books, but I feel like everybody knows, you know, Asimov, Bradbury, Clark, right? Um, I find Bradbury has aged with me very well. Like I can still go back and read his stuff and I love his writing and his prose. Asimov has not aged as well for me. Like I find his prose very clunky <laughs> and his characters are often very two-dimensional uh, compared to what I like to write these days. And, uh, and you know, and Clark is, is, a, is a mixed bag. So some of his stuff I still like, some of it I, I struggle with. Um, but I always tell people, I'm like, you don't need to read the classics. Like there's so many fantastic new writers in the space of science fiction and fantasy that um, I really encourage all of you to kind of go, go discover them. You can find, if you just go and look at Wikipedia for Hugo and Nebula nominees over the past five years, there's, um, there's just an incredible crop of new writers now who are pushing all kinds of boundaries. And then last question is parting advice to people who want to get into full-time writing or want to sort of follow in the path that you've done. Anything that maybe you've learned now that you wish you would have known sooner or just general thoughts of how people can achieve or get what they want out of their writing? I think the biggest thing I've learned is uh, perseverance. You know, I've talked to, I don't know if anyone in this audience is familiar with the Murderbot Diaries books that Martha Wells has written. They, they've been very successful for her, but she's been writing for 20 or 30 years and you know, has published many books, but has also had dry spells of three or four years have gone by where she hasn't sold anything. And that's kind of been my own takeaway too, is like I said, there's those ups and downs and the one, the people who succeed are the ones who keep trying through it all. And when you're starting out, especially if you have that stable other job, um, it can, it can be easy to turn away from writing and there's nothing wrong with that, right? Um, you can have a perfectly good life and a career, not as a writer, but if you, do want to pursue writing if you do want to continue and you do want to get published uh, the best thing you can do is um, keep writing new stuff don't the other thing is like yes you can sit and polish that one novel for five or ten years um but your odds are better if you you know put it aside and write something else because often the next thing that you write draws on all the lessons from the previous thing with none of the baggage and you will write something better. You can always go back to the stuff that's trunked, dig it out and, uh, and publish it later. But yeah, just, just persist, you know, just like sheer obstinate persistence in the face of rejections and then keep taking classes, you know, read books on craft, talk to your fellow writers, find a critique group if you can, um, take Gotham classes, like do, you know, do what you need to do to, to continue uh, improving your craft because you do need to have those basics. Um, that's something that you will legitimately get rejected for. You know, you got to have your grammar, your, your typos, your manuscript doesn't have to be 100% perfect, but if it's rife with errors, um, that's a load that the editor doesn't want to take on. So yeah, get, get, get your groundwork done and, um, and then keep, you know, keep trying, keep stretching yourself and uh, it will probably happen. Uh, everyone I've known who's persisted has eventually, who's persisted and improved 
um, has eventually gotten published. So mm -hmm. that's that's the takeaway. I wish someone had told me those those first six months of like, oh my God, everyone's just, you know, this is terrible. Maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe I'm not a good writer. Um, when those thoughts crop up, inevitably, just, just keep going. And lastly, what do you have to promote and where can people find you online? I know you've got some books handy, so it's, it's show and tell time. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll show off the this year's most important book, which is Machinehood, um, which I'm still super excited about. Um, you can find it anywhere, everywhere in audio, hardcover, paperbacks coming in March of next year. Um, please, please buy it if you if you think you even kind of like science fiction. It's not way out there. It's very grounded and readable. And same with uh, Runtime, which is my novella. So this is my first publication. And I don't think we talked about this, but um, I have a short story collection that was published at first in India and is available worldwide now, uh, as well as the Escape Pod anthology, which I see on Josh's <laughs> shelf, which we published uh, last year for our 15th anniversary. It's the, possibly the one and only time you're going to see our stuff in print. You can find me on Twitter as at Divius Tweets. Uh, I'm mostly on Twitter. I'm occasionally on Instagram as at SBDivia underscore author. And my website is sbdivia.com, very easy. Uh, and there's, if you like Machinehood and AI stuff, there's some goodies on the Machinehood website. So you can go to machinehood.com for that. Awesome. Uh, and all those, all the books that she mentioned, Escape Pod, all of that, we're going to include that in the show notes. So to all of our listeners, you will have links to that soon. Um, Divya, thank you so much for being here today. This was fantastic. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Of course. And to all of our listeners, uh, we'll be back. Actually, we have a special episode tomorrow on sensitivity readers. So uh, you can sign up for that on the Gotham website. And then next week, Wednesday, we're back and we're going to be talking to Ken Davenport. So we will see you then. Thanks for being here. Bye.